I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And this is Climate Positive. We're always challenging the utilities to be a little bit progressive. And we have to show them these technologies are not a threat to their futures, their technical grid, their unions, right, or their existence, right? We have to show them that they are a huge part of this transition. Expanding access to clean energy like solar is essential to the world's climate goals. And it's especially impactful for island nations in the Caribbean that face very high energy costs, but don't always have the political momentum needed to attract developers. As a director of projects for the Rocky Mountain Institute, which is now RMI, Chris Burgess navigates the decarbonization and decentralization of energy in markets that have previously been left out of the energy transition. This episode was recorded in our Annapolis studios, and a colleague who met with Chris remarked that he, quote, glows with enthusiasm for his work. I hope this episode brings that enthusiasm to you. And if you'd like to learn more, check out the show notes for a link to a 60 Minutes feature on Chris's team at RMI. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here in Annapolis today. It's great to have you. It's awesome to be here. So before we dig into your current work at RMI, I want to get a sense of your background. You were with the EPA, focused on brownfields for a while, then worked at Alpha Energy here in Annapolis, and hold a master's from Johns Hopkins in environmental science and policy. What is it about the environment that drew you to the space? You know, I think that that happened in college. I just was drawn to the challenges you know, the human environment mixing with the natural environment and all of the open career paths that, that one could take, right? And what I really like about the industry is it's so multidisciplined. So you're not pigeonholed in, in one scientific expertise, right? You can dabble in geology, you can look in geotechnical science, you can look at the, the human environment through urban planning, as well as the ecology, right, which I was really drawn to growing up and living on the Chesapeake Bay. So I think it was that multidisciplinary approach that, that brought me to the environmental sciences where you do have to know a little bit about everything and how they interact and what the most fair and equitable way is to regulate that. So that's what really drew me in at an early age in my early 20s. And then when the renewables became very competitive with traditional energy sources, it really drew me there. From an entrepreneurial standpoint, you know, instead of regulating away the problem, why not just outcompete it with a better energy source? And so that's what drew me to renewables. And I found two really cool entrepreneurs right here in Annapolis, David Murren and Marcellus Butler, and Alpha Energy was born. I do love that interdisciplinary side of the environmental space. And when I was studying environmental science as an undergrad, we got to take classes from all the different departments. And you still draw on that working in this area now. And especially with your work at RMI, you need to know the people on the ground and the stakeholders. That's it. I mean, anybody that's developed a solar project or a wind project will thank their professors from the multidisciplines in college that you really do touch on so many of the aspects of the environment and the way they're regulated from clean water to how far are you away from a brownfield, you know, what's your setbacks on certain tributaries, you know, all that comes into play when you're developing projects. 
So talk to me about your transition from the EPA and Alpha Energy to RMI. What drew you towards this nonprofit that was originally started as a think tank decades ago and was at the forefront of this discussion about decarbonization and decentralization? Yeah, it's actually a cool story. So Alpha was drawn to the Caribbean by one business deal, which was going to be a waste-to-energy plant coupled with solar. So the solar was going to make it more economical. Where was that? On Nevis, which is uh, St. Kitts and Nevis, the Federation in the Eastern Caribbean. So we went down there a couple of times, met with the stakeholders, kind of understood that that small power system. The rates that they were paying were astronomical. Uh, I think that was 2012 and 2011 was the peak of the oil. I think it was $140 a barrel at one point. And so when oil peaks like that, the utilities in the region have no choice but to raise their fuel pass-through rates. So, I mean, I think they were paying 28 to 32 cents a kilowatt hour back then. So it's pretty high. So we were like, economically, this is a, a slam dunk, right? But then you realize where the market barriers really are, right? With the scale, the regulation, the lack of fiscal space and credit, a lot of these off-takers have, you know, the utilities and the governments. And so, you know, after about a year or so not being able to get that deal done, there was a friend of a friend that said, hey, listen, the Carbon War Room in Washington, D.C. is looking for, you know, an operations manager, which was kind of short for a developer. So I interviewed for it, not thinking much of it. And, um, you know, a couple months later, I got the job and had to make a career decision at that point. And so when I took the job, I was thinking it was going to be short term. It was going to help with some of the market barriers in various jurisdictions, including the Caribbean, and that I would get back to the private sector. So I even told Justin Locke, who's still my uh, managing director, hey, man, I'll give you like 24 months, right? <laughs> I just, all I can give you that I get, I get back to hustling deals and, and, and putting steel in the ground. And, you know, after the first year, I just, just kind of fell in love with the work, fell in love with the culture. The travel, I mean, being on the the tip of the spear, right, the bleeding edge of these markets was really inspiring. And, and of course, being able to hire people from the region who have an immense skill set and, and just don't have the opportunities that we do here in the States. So, you know, by 2016, this was 2014, I was got hired. By 2016, I was all in. So I was not looking back, still doing some part-time work with Alpha, had retired from the EPA and really put my heart and soul into RMI's Islands Energy Program. And so you're hired by the Carbon War Room. Can you talk a little bit about what the goal was of that group and then how it later merged with RMI? Yeah, sure. So the Carbon War Room was an idea from Sir Richard Branson to bring the power of the commercial sector and, and entrepreneurs to the climate challenge. And there were a number of sectors that, that he really wanted to focus on, trucking, shipping, aviation, buildings, and islands. And islands really stuck out. It's like, hey, that's, a, that's a weird one. That's not an industry. But it's where the economics were really, really compelling. So our kilowatt hours are just cheaper than your kilowatt hours. We don't need any grants. We don't need any tax incentives. We don't need any solar carve-outs, right? We don't need any of the things that were in place in, in the States and Canada and Europe in terms of the tariffs. We could just go down there and show them economically how it was done. Well, that was pretty naive. <laughs> <laughs> 
because there's a lot of things besides the economics that are in the way, you know, especially an industry that has been built around fossil fuels for the last 60 years. So all the regulations, you know, all the legal frameworks, people's jobs, the unions, I mean, everything's built around that complex. So you had to navigate it very strategically, very fairly and very equitably. And so that really was the challenge of the islands that we were faced with in those early years. And I think within the first couple of months of being hired by the Carbon War Room, it was apparent that there was a, a marriage about to happen between RMI and the Carbon War Room. And Sir Richard Branson and Amory Lovins, who's the founder of RMI, had a mutual respect for each other, had a relationship, and they made that merger happen. And so RMI basically took over Carbon War Room brought in most of the employees, brought in most of the intellectual works and, and the networks that they were establishing in the commercial sector. And it's been that way ever since. And what is RMI's story? When we came into this recording room, you noticed the Soft Energy Pass, which was written by your founder and is a favorite of the chairman of HASI, Jeff Eckel. What is the premise? And talk to me about when it was started and why it made sense at that time? Yeah, so Amory Lovins is like the great-grandfather of energy efficiency, right? He's like our Albert Einstein, you know, in, in terms of really discovering scientifically and economically the power of energy efficiency and distributed energy resources way, way before it's, its time. And there's a lot of people in the industry, particularly some of the more veteran people in the industry that know Amory or know of his works and his in his books. The soft energy pathway is not one that many people know. Uh, most people know reinventing fire as well as natural capitalism. You really have to be into Amory Lovins to know the soft energy pathway. So when I walked in this room and saw that, I was pretty delighted that Jeff Eccles actually had that book here. And, and well read too. Yes. It's been flipped through more it's than It's been flipped times. through. You can definitely tell. It's like a library book at this point. But it really, it really highlights the opportunity that we have in the built environment not to build gargantuan power plants and gargantuan transmission lines and environmentally, socially put that impact on our country when we can really build out the energy resources we need right here in town or you know, right in the next farm field or right on the roof. Like it, it's a distributed energy pathway as opposed to a big centralized pathway. And, you know, at the time in 1977, when that was written, that was almost laughable, uh, the way energy was built and, and distributed at the time. But if you look back some, what, 45 years later, it's exactly what is happening right? Especially in, in jurisdictions like Bermuda, where I just got back from a couple of weeks ago, where they literally don't have extra land resources on that small island. And they're going to go 80% renewable, literally on their own rooftops. So it's pretty, pretty exciting. That's got to be exciting to yeah, see. Yeah. And so RMI was started, I believe in the Carter administration, but it's nonpartisan. And their goal right now is and this is on the website, to identify and scale energy system interventions to cut greenhouse gas emissions by at least 50% by 2030. Yes. What does that look like on the ground for you? And what are some of the projects that you're engaged in? Yeah. So RMI for a couple decades, you know, starting in the late 70s, was it was with Think Tank. 
So it was really about the economic arguments needed for policy, particularly domestic policy, on where the U.S. could put their time, talent, and resources to have more energy security, to have more energy equity across this great country. And it wasn't until the carbon war room that the think tank met the do tank. Okay. Right? And I think that's why there's that mutual respect for each other. Because Amory's an academic, and Amory is well-known globally, and he's consulted every U.S. president since the Carter administration. But it wasn't a project shop, right? It wasn't a project development shop. And so with the Carbon War Room, we were able to marry the analysts with the entrepreneurs. And, and since that time, we've been in a number of markets really trying to knock down those market barriers to help the proliferation of, of energy transition happen through the commercial sector. And that's very difficult in places that don't have an entrepreneurial class or they don't have the resources, even if they had the entrepreneurial class, to identify, develop, and invest in these renewables. And so what's great about RMI is because we're funded philanthropically, we can come in and act as a, an owner's representative or a developer and do that on grant funds and then bring projects to the market that are completely de-risked and permitted and ready to go. And when you're looking to engage on a project, who do you talk to first? Who are the initial stakeholders that you need to win over to understand how to bring the project to life? Yeah, so the Islands Energy Program is really founded on three primary pillars. There is project planning, or what we call energy planning. And that's very similar to an IRP in the U.S. context. It's an integrated resource plan that the utilities have to do every, whatever, three to five years for the public service commissions. You know, what's the load going to be? What's the load growth? How are you going to meet that load? You know, that's fairly regulated in almost every U.S. jurisdiction. So we're bringing that type of capital planning and forethought to the islands, but then bringing in all the other governmental and, and commercial stakeholders. So the hotels, the industries that are there, the governments, the community groups. So everyone has a seat at the table to really put the facts on the table and have a common vision right? Where do we want to take this jurisdiction? Where do we want to take this island? And so uh, we coined that the National Energy Transition Strategies and the NETS. So we did that in about six different jurisdictions in the Caribbean, and that provided the kind of foundation that everybody could look at. And that foundation can influence policy, can influence regulation, and can influence the utilities capital planning. And so from that point, a lot of other NGOs would just walk away. And so their claim to fame would be a report or a convening. We take it all the way from concept to commissioning. So the next step was to identify a project that everybody can agree on and that we are going to knock down the market barriers that are preventing that project from happening. So we'll find the land. We'll de-risk the land. We'll do the geotechs. We'll do the interconnection studies. We'll do the environmental social impact studies. We'll hire local professionals to do all those disciplines. Then we bring in the technical specifications and we'll actually build the RFP and we'll help the utility or the government or the financial sponsor who might be a development bank take that to market. 
and bring in well-qualified, well-capitalized, insured and bonded companies to build the first project. And after it's operating, you really get to see the demystification and the de-risking in that market and say, wow, this power plant works every day when the sun rises and it's 40% cheaper than burning diesel. Like why are we? Why are we? Why are we doing more of this? Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention it employed X more people, and we're we're building the the workforce for the future. So, the first two pillars: planning. Second pillar: projects, and the most important pillars: people and partnerships. So, the people we want to hire. We want to hire locally. We want to train and invest in people that we don't hire. So they're more skilled at the utility or in the governments and the private sector of those jurisdictions to take the energy transition on themselves. And then the partnerships, because there's so many other organizations doing great work in the, in the region that we want to make sure that we're not stepping on toes and that we're completely aligned with the energy transition. So those four pillars is really what we stand on in the region. And it's been so successful We've had six of the first utility scale projects done in six different jurisdictions, which, you know, a private sector company would have lost their shirt five times over, right? right. In, ter- in terms of the transaction costs and what had to happen. Um, but we're setting that, that really good precedent. And it's been so popular that the general counsel or the, the executive counsel at RMI said, listen, let's take that model from the islands, and let's apply it to the jurisdictions that are really going to have the most carbon impact over the next, you know, couple decades, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia. So now the islands program, which was this little program that came from the carbon war room, is now called the Global South. And it's taking those four pillars and putting in those other jurisdictions so we can help navigate the very difficult pathway to renewables over fossil fuels. It's interesting how you're able to bring everyone to the table and get that real deep buy-in at the beginning. And as you say, typically that's where a lot of USAIDs or nonprofits would then step back or even the think tanks. And how powerful that you're then able to leverage those relationships and actually see projects to completion. Right. And that's why the four pillars are important because without the people, without the partnerships, that would be much more difficult. And that would be another plan on a shelf, right? We've seen so many times. And I think the other challenge is what was true in 2015 in terms of least cost economics is not true in 2023. So, you know, back then battery storage was, you know, so expensive, it was almost unheard of that you would actually have a battery project in the Caribbean. Well, now we don't do a project without battery storage because everybody wants firm dispatchable power and, and, and storage has gotten so cheap. So we have to remember that we're on a technology curve that's extremely fast for the electricity industry that doesn't innovate all that much, all that well. And we're disrupting a mechanical, analog, you know, hardware type system with a ton of software and a ton of technology that's really been borrowed from the manufacturing of LCD TVs and lithium ion batteries for phones and all those things that have made made our lives so technologically advanced in the last 20 years is now being applied to the energy space. And that's really tough for a regulator, really tough for a utility to keep up with. So wind power and geothermal power, which may have been least cost 
back in 2010 to 2015 is easily being lapped by by solar and battery now. So you got to make sure that your plans are updated every two years instead of every five years because the economics change so rapidly. So when you go to some of these islands, imagine some of the dominant players are the utilities and they have customers who are accustomed to paying the bills and they recognize that there are outages and they're just kind of dealing with it for better or for worse. How do you get their buy-in? What's their incentive to bring in these solar projects and support them? Yeah, excellent question. And that's actually a sore spot in the early days of the Carbon War Room is when I got there, all the memorandums of understanding were with governments. Okay. And governments can say almost anything they want because they're not directly responsible you know, for the utility, especially on the international stage where grant funding and popularity can come from the UN if you're pledging 100%. So a lot of the prime ministers and a lot of the cabinets really wanted to go 100% renewable. But if you look at the economics, it's still really, really tough to go 100%, right? Unless you have a geothermal resource that you can tap into. Back then, I think lease cost was somewhere around 30%. So we we really wanted to put the facts on the table, and that's where that planning process came in, to not discourage the politicians, but to bring them back down to earth, say, this is what we can do now. But the goal should be 100% as the technology and the calls catch up, right? And that really won us respect with the utilities. The fact that I had been dealing with the utilities for a number of years with interconnections here in Maryland, I kind of understood that vernacular and understood their conservative nature when it comes to their grid, which is, has to be balanced at, at the millisecond between supply and load. And at that point, you know, that first project is really where the utilities and governments can agree sometimes for the first time on where they want to go. So having the utilities buy in early is super important. We're always challenging the utilities to be a little bit progressive. And we have to show them that these technologies are not a threat to their futures, their technical grid, their unions, right? Or their existence, right? We have to show them that they are a huge part of this transition. And then they turn around and say, listen, we love to be a huge part of this transition, but our rules and regulations are from 1982, right? And so the Arab oil embargo really impacted the business model in the Caribbean. So no longer were these utilities able to take risk on fuel, which had been very, very straight line for the whole, basically all the 60s and the 70s, to one that's incredibly volatile. So at that point, they regulated in the fuel pass-through. So based on, you know, the Houston whatever whatever index, they could raise and lower your fuel costs on a monthly basis. And so that helped them to, to stay solvent. But what it did is took away all the incentive for them to do anything else, right? So we are now trying to dismantle the fuel pass-through so the utilities are more incentivized to go with renewables. Because right now they can just literally pass through the fuel to their customers, uh, sometimes very painfully, particularly this past year with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and the spike that that did globally to oil prices, particularly gas and diesel prices. 
So if we can dismantle that and make it a win-win for the utilities, I think we can exponentially accelerate the pace of renewable adoption. And so when you're looking to start in a new market, how do you even get the utilities to the table? And I used to work in the Middle East, and there you have to spend a lot of time building trust with the people who live there and work with these companies before they'll even take a phone call, much less come to a meeting for maybe half a day. Yeah. No. Do you have your partners on the ground scoping out who's in charge and what their incentives are? Yeah. I mean, the great thing about the Islands program is we're almost entirely from the Caribbean. So we have former utility CEOs on our staff. Matter of fact, David Gums is the former CEO of uh, the Anguilla Electricity Company, Anglec. Great guy, lives, lives in Montgomery County. So, you know, having him on board is huge. Obviously, he has the network and, and understands. We also have another gentleman named uh, Fidel Neverson, who used to work for the St. Vincent utility. And we have another board member, Owen Lewis, who's on the Montserrat Utilities Limited Board. So we understand that space. We are entrenched in that space. And I think we built a lot of trust with our first planning process in St. Lucia, where the utility was under a ton of pressure from the government. But we came in as that broker, right, that independent agent that could hear both sides and kind of bridge a compromise or a solution, which was the National Energy Transition Strategy. And so because we weren't anti-utility, we were able to build respect within the community of utilities in the Caribbean. Um, It's called Carolec. So it's very similar to the American Power Association here, APA. You've touched on some of the challenges that the islands face with these high and often volatile prices, and they are, by definition, more isolated. They're also very susceptible to hurricanes. How do, when you're putting in these solar installations, how do those hold up in Category 5 hurricanes? Yeah, so there was quite a ramp up in solar from, say, 2011 to 2017. And so a lot of jurisdictions in the Caribbean, particularly Puerto Rico and USVI, who could lean back on the U.S. tax code, right, through the investment tax credit, uh, had built out quite a bit of solar, hundreds of megawatts between those two islands. But they were built when hurricanes were at a law. So there wasn't a lot of hurricane activity between, say, 2010 and 2017. And if there was, it was Category 3-ish, right? I think Katrina was a big five, but that was, what, 2005? We didn't really have super powerful hurricanes for that time. So people were just building solar to what they thought was the the average wind resilience. Well, 2017 was a reckoning. And Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Maria ripped through the Caribbean. When I say ripped, I mean total devastation. Two, three years worth of GDP just demolished over two days. And solar was definitely impacted in many of those jurisdictions. But we also found quite a number of surviving solar farms and rooftops, and we really wanted to figure out what's happening. Why did this solar farm, which maybe even experienced longer sustained winds at 185 mile an hour survive, versus this one that was just clipped with 185 that's been totally decimated? And so we hired two structural engineers that have spent the better part of their careers in wind tunnels. 
They used to work for Sun Edison back in the day. So they were designing these structures for almost every type of environment. Frank and Chris from FCX Solar, two really, really great guys. Structural engineers that got their PhDs in wind resilience, right, and, and wind loading. Um, so we hired them to go down to three different installations to figure out what went wrong. And so they did a, a failure mode analysis on these installations. And they also took a look at the surviving solar farms as well. And not to get too deep in the structural weeds, but what they found out is it came down to really two things. Design, right? So they were only designing these things to, from 120 to 150 mile an hour. Obviously, you have sustained winds of 185 up to 220 with gusts. That's a big, big difference in, in wind resilience. And the other was workmanship and fasteners. So workmanship, the cover of solar under storm, which, which I'll get into, they had an entire bottom row that the bolts had went through, but no one ever put the nuts on. Just because it, it was low to the ground, it was probably hard to get to, they just kind of stuck them in there. No one QAQC'd it, right? So they didn't actually have the bottom row <laughs> of bolts fastened at all. And the other failure mode was where they had fastened them in a number of places, they had just vibrated loose. So they actually didn't have the anti-vibratory um, you know, washers and locks. So once we figured out design, fastening, and workmanship, we began to kind of backtrack how you could actually design these for the future. And so we wrote a publication called Solar Under Storm. It was the most downloaded report in RMI history, believe it or not. And that happened- Which is really saying something because you're a think tank. You put out a lot of good research. Exactly, exactly. And and we, we were very surprised by that. We thought this was going to be a niche industry paper, you know, just for the few people who were designing projects in, in hurricane regions. But we had forgotten that it was an incredibly active typhoon and cyclone season as well. So all throughout the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, think about the energy transition that's happening in Southeast Asia, where it's the Philippines, Vietnam, India, Indonesia. They were also being impacted by these storms. And they are also building the solar plants or the rooftop to a category three-ish, four-ish standard. So it was the international downloads coupled with the downloads from like Florida and the Caribbean that really took that number pretty high. And we've seen it work. So we we've we build every project now to category five. We had an installation survive Hurricane Dorian, which ripped through in, in 2019. And we're finding that if installed correctly, particularly on rooftops, solar actually helps the structure retain itself. And so that's the cover of Solar Understorm 2, which is all about rooftops. I should add, you have a fantastic photo here of what it, walk us through this. Is this a house or a building with the roof? So that, solar? that's a small uh, school in Abaco. And so Abaco is the island in the Bahamas that was absolutely decimated by, by Hurricane Dorian in 2019. And if you look at the photo, the entire you know, backside of the roof and the side of the roof, is the sheathing is completely ripped off. But where they had the solar installation is completely intact. And that's just because the design of those particular rails is crossed to the joists and is able to provide another layer of security and wind resilience on that particular roof. And, you know, that's not going to be the case 
in, in every roof, but we just thought that that was very telling of what solar can be versus what it was in 2017, which was just part of the wreckage. Which I think has scared some people off from solar developments in these hurricane-prone areas, even in Florida. But you've shown that doesn't have to be the case. Absolutely. That was the rhetoric, um, particularly from, you know, the fossil fuel industry is like, you know, renewables aren't resilient. Look at this wind turbine that was ripped apart. Uh, look at this solar, you know, farm that was completely wiped off and it is nothing but but rubble now. But, you know, they don't want to talk about the survivorships that that we also saw. And, you know, the way these structures are built now, they're actually being installed at critical facilities because they are so resilient and reliable. So a really sad story, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, many communities in the interior of the island depend on pumping stations to bring them potable water. And after Hurricane Maria, the pumping stations, you know, were off grid. But many of them had backup diesel. So they were able to provide clean potable water pumped up to these communities, uh, in some cases for, for up to a week. But then they were cut off from their fuel supply entirely because the roads were impassable, the ports were destroyed, they weren't able to import the fuel. So sadly, many, many people, they think up to like 1,200 people died because of the lack of potable water in these communities. If they would have had solar built to category five standard without battery, they could at least pump the water during the daylight hours, right? Now you couple that with battery and they can give a 24, you know, seven support system to that critical facility. So we've taken a lot of those lessons learned and applied them in the islands that have been decimated by the hurricanes the last several years. So schools that double as hurricane shelters now have solar and storage. So that is where they can go to stay cool with AC. They can plug in their cell phones. They can keep medical supplies cool. You know, all the things that you take for granted with electricity that, that really come full scale in your face uh, after the hurricane, we're able to put that in a number of communities. We're also seeing this at a, at a larger scale, so hospitals. And you say, well, how do you make that economical? Which the great thing about distributed energy is that it doesn't have to be just a backup power source. So if you think about all the diesel plants or all the diesel generators at hospitals, and that's globally, they just sit there, right? They sit there idle. They have to be maintained. They rust. Fuel has to be changed out. They have to be tested. Depending on the jurisdiction, they may not run for a whole year, right? They may not run for three, four years. They are just a backup energy source. Well, when you have distributed energy, like solar and battery, that can be built on the hospital, adjacent to the hospital, on the same feeder as the hospital. Whatever the uh, configuration is, is best served, it can be installed there, work with the grid all day, every day as a least cost generator, right? So the solar is going in cheaper than the diesel is going in. That's working all day, every day. The battery is coming in as a, as a firm source. So the hospitals, if we had a diesel generator, it would just be, you know, fifty, hundred thousand dollars investment that would really sit there and wait for the worst case scenario, where you can apply that same investment to solar and battery, and that can work with the grid all day, every day. 
It can provide ancillary services through the battery. It can provide energy arborage if you need that. Um, and of course, the solar is being sold into the grid or injected into the grid way cheaper than business as usual, which is burning diesel. And so that's really the groundwork of the new distributed energy paradigm. So instead of having these large centralized fossil fuel plants or power plants that have to be transmitted over you know, miles and miles and miles, you can put your energy sources where you need them most. And that way they work with the grid every day. And if the grid goes down, which it inevitably will in almost any storm, you still have that power resource local to the hospital. So it's almost like a data center where they don't even feel the flinch of, you know, the grid being lost. It's just automatic transfer switch, nanoseconds, you know, you're, you're on the battery and the, and the solar. And so we're building that out in a number of islands, letting those critical facilities be the hubs of clean energy generation that then can proliferate to small businesses, you know, residential communities and government facilities. Do the economics of these projects work in some of the Southeast Asian countries where you're active and some of the regions like Africa and the Middle East where there are a lot of fuel subsidies and the people who are entrenched with the utilities are often some of the wealthier people who have all the political connections and have an interest in not changing how the subsidies work. Well, it's it's funny you say that. And this isn't my RMI hat. This is my alpha hat. We got hired by a military contractor to do a feasibility study for Saudi Arabia. And so Saudi Arabia subsidizes all their electricity, particularly to the public. So when they do water treatment, water pumping, wastewater treatment, wastewater pumping, that's all done with diesel, right? That's all done from the grid. And they had us do a study to see if we could just convert that to solar and battery, right? And that way, less of their fuel, which is their global commodity that they have to sell for their economy, can go away from subsidy and out to the market. So it doesn't matter. There's some mixed incentives Exactly. It doesn't matter what what seat at the table you're on. Solar and battery is, is kicking butt everywhere, right? When it comes to Southeast Asia, there are a ton of islands there. And many of those islands are not interconnected back to the main island or back to the mainland. So they are also in diesel generators. So anywhere that's the, there's a diesel energy source, solar and battery is, you know, 30, 40, 50% cheaper. Sub-Saharan Africa is a bit different. The electricity grid isn't really built out there. So you're actually electrifying these communities for the first time which is really exciting. It's almost like the mobile phone jump, right? They didn't need the wires. They weren't right to mobile phones. Very similar with the mini grid uh, entrepreneurs and developers that are there in sub-Saharan Africa, where you're bringing a new service. You're bringing a new resource to these communities for the first time. And it's illuminating for education, for you know, light at night, for cleaning, to run a laptop, to run a small business. So it's a different problem there. But everywhere you turn, solar and battery is making an impact on the economy. What keeps you excited about this work? What motivates you to continue with RMI? I think it's the people. You know, uh, the people are so passionate and so dedicated because I think they can see the light at the end of the tunnel. These are very small power systems. We work with a power system that is only two megawatts in terms of peak. So really flipping that from a 100% diesel to 
Right now, it's about 93% is the least cost penetration right now with where battery prices are. But still, 93% is amazing. I mean, the, the diesels only come on like a few hundred hours of the year out of the 8,760 hours that it needs to run. So it's a phenomenal jump. And you're really proud that you're you're not just doing that for the good of the environment, you know, for them to meet their climate goals. You're actually doing that to lower their energy bills because it is the least cost pathway you can go. So there are a number of small islands that are already flipped. So they're already at 93%. And the larger jurisdictions are next. So it'd be really, really exciting to transition this region fast and let them be in the be the pioneers of distributed energy, resilience, and energy equity. That way they don't have to import so much of the fuel from other jurisdictions at a really high rate, not to mention the volatility that really hampers them economically. You know, to fiscally look down and know exactly what you're gonna pay for energy for the next 20 to 25 years, which is the life of a project, is really liberating. Right? That's powerful. And instead of every month just kind of crossing your fingers that it's not another 20% spike in fuel, that's really going to hamper some of your operational funds, particularly as a government where you want to invest in education, you want to invest in ports, right? You want to invest in fiber optics and telecom. Like you can't do that because every month you have a different fuel bill. So fiscally, I think it's really powerful and you're going to see really a, an ignition, if you will, of economic forces in the Caribbean, hopefully in the next 10 years. You've done some work in Barbados, and they have very progressive policies there. Could you talk to us about those a bit? Yes. Yeah, so we have a Bayesian on the team, and that, that's what they call if you're from if you're from I, Barbados. I would not have known that. Yes, yes. If you're from Barbados, you're a Bayesian. Just a, an incredible culture and incredible people. And they have a, a fearless leader named Mia Motley, uh, who I saw you had featured for your Women's Month here yes. in the lobby. She is fantastic, and she's becoming the face of kind of climate change and climate equity. So she is super charismatic, and she put it in a, a policy domestically. It's called solar by right. So you literally have the right to put solar on your property up to a certain KW, whether you're a, a business or a, a homeowner. And... That sounds, you know, pedestrian, right? But it's not. It's actually really precedent-setting that someone has the right to put solar on their roof. It's almost like you are having the right to generate your own energy for your own energy security. And it's really caused a lot of, you know, ruffles down there, so to speak, and a lot of challenges with the utility and permitting and all these type of things. But you have to be bold. She was willing to break some eggs to make an omelet. And I think you're seeing that, you know, the distributed energy pathway is getting more and more milestones in that transition. And I think people will look back at that particular policy and say, that might've been the, the start of Solar by Right. So we're going to switch to rapid fire questions. First up, when I want to recharge, I? Fish. Nice. Where? Well, right in your backyard most of the time. Full disclosure, both of our families live in West Annapolis, which is an awesome little neighborhood. Yes. Weems Creek. Weems Creek fishing or the Severn River. A key to my productivity is? Uh, Collaboration. It's good to get other viewpoints, particularly from other jurisdictions and other cultures before you make sound decisions. Great. 
A book or an event that changed my perspective is? An event? Yeah, Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Maria really changed my perspective on where we're at in the climate crisis and where we need to be to be secure, to be resilient, and to be thoughtful about the future. With the urgency that it showed you? Because you were already active in that space. Yeah, I think it was it was very academic before that time. You know, you, you read about all these things that were going to happen, but to actually experience it and to know that business as usual is not going to work, right? Business as usual will fail. We have to transition and we have to build back better. We have to build with adaptation, uh, particularly on these islands that, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, these islands are going to disappear with sea level rise. You know, some of these islands are thousands of feet in elevation because they're volcanic. So these islands are not going to disappear, but many of the services, many of the critical facilities are going to be severely impacted where the next time we build one, we're going to have to build it at a higher elevation. We're going to have to build it differently. And we're going to have to reorient the economy in order for that culture to survive. Finally, to me, climate positive means? Climate positive means opportunity. I just think there's an incredible amount of disruption in many different sectors globally that people should see this as not a crisis, but an opportunity. You know, whether you're a young person just coming into the working world or someone that is going into school or someone that's that's had a career in telecom or, or another industry that wants to get into industry. This industry is wide open with opportunities, needs new ideas, and needs innovation. Chris, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for coming in. Absolutely. And thanks for all of your work with RMI. Thanks, Hillary. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. It really helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosiPod or email us at ClimatePositive at Hassey.com. I'm Gil Jenkins, and this is Climate Positive.